Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Not everyone can say that their mother was part of an all-woman motorcycle troop in Vietnam in the 1950s, but Hoa Huynh can. If you think that it would be the kind of personal mythology out of which poetry could be made, you'd be correct. Hoa Huynh's latest book is called A Thousand Times You Lose Your Treasure. She's the author of several books, including Red Juice, Poems 1998 to 2008, and Violet Energy Ingots, which received a 2017 Griffin Prize nomination. Born in Vinh Long in the year of the fire horse, Hoa was raised and educated in the United States and has lived in Canada since 2011. A real joy and honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Hua. Uh, thank you, Paul. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Excellent. Before we talk about the book, I'd like to talk uh, to you about your stance toward poem making. A former student of yours says that the essay Projective Verse by Charles Olson is something you assign to students. And I was wondering if that essay gives us a sense of how you approach poetry composition. Oh, well, sure. I mean, projective verse was important to me in my thinking about poems as a field. Um, you know, I, I studied the uh, Black Mountain poets when I was a student at New College. Um, and then I still uh, post, you know, that period um, found great influence in the thinking around how poems are made, what do they do, um, what, what are the signatures of also like community that surrounds a poem. Um, those were all deeply informed by that, that period of time. And um, in San Francisco, my, one of my mentors is Joanne Kiger, who I know you've had on this program uh, or have interviewed in the past. Um, and she said that she often read projective verse and thought about syllable seeds, um, that syllables could be strung on uh, like beads on a necklace. You know, so one gathers, you know, really from all, many different sources and the ways in which those like sources, you know, change and are adapted, you know, through time. Uh, Olson, someone that I've taught uh, the poetry of um, the Maximus poems. Most recently, in a in a workshop, we we sort of uh, touched on like and really sort of like not even dipped into, but just like just touched uh, the Maximus poems while we were also working with the tarot, which is a a, a symbol system that I I'm interested in and and had studied for a long time. Um, Anyway, so so yeah, projective verse. I'm I'm interested in in how a poem, you know, is an energy discharge. You know, that is uh, at all points. You know, it is moving, instanter to new perceptions, and those are really helpful things to think about. You know, what a poem can do, or how a poem can feel. Um, the idea of breath um, being a signature of one's line or one's measure seemed um, so intuitively correct. Um, when, I, when I read it in projective verse, I think probably other people have arrived at different ways of expressing the same thing. Um, but the idea of like the breath line, um, 
you know, the, the page as a, as a field uh, upon which, you know, you know, you can, uh, within which you can move. Um, Duncan is also someone uh, whose ideas about composition by field has also been um, influential on my thinking about how to make poems. So yes. <laughs> when you talk about Joanne Kiger, I immediately think of an interview that was in the book that Cedar Seigel put together about Joanne Kiger. And an interviewer um, who, uh, who said he was kind of surprised that she could write spontaneously and not really mess with the poem too much after, that it was pretty much finished when she finished writing it. And um, he said, that must be very difficult. And she said, no, I mean, you, you, basically you train yourself to write like that. And he says, well, I couldn't do that. And her answer was, well, you can, <laughs> very simply like that. And uh, it's easy to, to say that, and it takes, what, 15, 20, 25 years to write like that. But your poems, and this, there's such surprise mind and such wonderful juxt uh, juxtapositions in them. I'm wondering how much you go back to them after you've written them and, and tweak them and shape them or if it comes out as a blast? It doesn't come out as a blast, although um, certainly like I, I agree with what uh, Joanne Kiger was saying there um, that you can train yourself to um, pay attention to phrasing and um, melodic cohesions uh, in, in a way to at least um, you know, uh, aim your gathering. And so um, my free writing or whatever, my spontaneous writing um, can, you know, indeed contain quite a lot of what then ends up on the page after I decide that it's done. Um, but there is, you know, re revision. And, and I think in particular with this book, um, because it was, it was also uh, proposing a shape, it was proposing to, um, you know, tell stories um, that had particular kinds of content. It also was interested in sort of biography and verse, um, interested in, you know, ar archival interactions and uh, other forms of, of gathering and reportage and uh, investigative and sort of mythic also many, many different kinds of attempts, but they were pitched. So I, I did find with this book, my management of the materials um, had, a, had a new sort of precedence in its making than say previous book, Violet Energy Ingots was more led by my engagements with, you know, thinking with poetry, um, interacting with the world, um, current events, external, <laughs> interior, um, and so on. So uh, it's interesting, I do think in this book, in this occasion, it, it was it was more managed uh, post spontaneous moment of, of writing than in previous um, iterations. But um, yeah, so I, so a mix, I would say. And, you know, I think that um, I, I do remember actually in, in a Kiger poem, uh, one of the moments of the poem said something like, I, I know this, I know this sounds um, spontaneous, but it's actually composed, which is you can't, one can't tell what, how to take that exactly. 
maybe maybe that that's a slyness there in the poem, given that she's known to say that she um, tends not to revise heavily. But I do also remember that she said, you know, that you can overwork a poem um, that, like bread, it, you can make it make it tough. And I and I've always remembered that as well. And I think there can be like over processing that happens in the revising and. So it's about like touch also. You're in a very unique position where you, um, you grow up and you start studying poetry in the United States. And then since 2011, living in Canada. And of course I live in a bioregion, Cascadia that is intersected by the 49th parallel. So we connect with a lot of Canadian poets. I was in your Fred Waugh workshop, for example, and, and love Fred's work, Daphne Marlett, George Barring. Sharon Thiessen, uh, Barry McKinnon, uh, the late Peter Cully, many other poets from Canada. What is the, what's the difference between the poetry communities in the United States and, and those in Canada as you've experienced them? You know, I've, I've, I've experienced them in, in, in a very personal way, you know, through sort of my, my locale, which is, uh, you know, is not in BC, it's, it's in Ontario and here in Toronto. Uh, dish with one spoon territory. Um, I um, I found you know my arrival here ten years ago, or now almost eleven years ago. You know, met with a really vibrant community, people who make you know make books. Um, one of the things you know I think that's enviable in Canada is it's it's a collection of small presses that that bring out poetry uh, titles. Um, and have these great catalogs. They're also supported by the arts, um, by, the, by the federal government so that they can also produce really lovely books and, and have a catalog uh, that, that extends you know, across uh, years. Um, in other words, you know, the support for the arts here is, is really quite extensive in, in relatively speaking to the US. So I find that people you know, um, you know, have a healthy, reading life, you know, lots of uh, readership here. It's interesting to see um, how work uh, crosses the border. Um, I think a lot of uh, times in the US, one doesn't think of, I mean, well, the US tends to be a little bit, you know, myopic or, you know, self-centered. So <laughs> I say this as, you know, someone who's culturally American, um, as well as someone who's lived in Canada 10 years. So there is a certain way, like a self-perspective too, of like, what does it mean? What is Amer what is Americanness? What are Americans' tendencies? That 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 um, truism that one really learns about you know who one is when you leave where you're from, um, and so it that's that's been quite interesting. Uh, it's interesting, as I started to say, to see you know how work is exchanged across the border, and you really see that it's about relationships. Um, and so I'm interested in I've always been interested in in how relationships. Um, are 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 these carriers of um, culture formation? How they impact art making? How they how they're necessary, um, especially as a as a, a way to respond outside of institutional uh, formats. Um, and so you know, so in Canada, the small presses have more institutional support, which is a quite different. Um, so less fly by night uh, also by comparison, you know, many, many small presses have brief, you know, bright runs and then, you know, necessarily, you know, 
it becomes something else or, or, or dormant. And that was sort of the case with, with my small press, Skanky Possum, which I started in the, in the 90s. We published a few books and had a magazine for a while, but, uh, but no institutional support. So that's, so that's a, an interesting contrast and to see what that does around the conversations. Um, and, um, and what else can I say about the community here? I mean, I, I felt really welcomed. You know, I had people uh, start attending my workshops um, and, you know, forming, founding, finding a, a formation of community around, around those, you know, this kind of openness to join um, and try, you know, try this person that, that they didn't know out to see what I was up to um, and, and really good readers, like readers of each other's work. Um, you know, people buy books, which is always nice. And um, what else can I say? I feel like the, you know, the, the tendency to read sort of within one's communities also is, is the same too, like in, in um, but that Canadians are, are more uh, open to reading US authors than say like US authors, you know, reaching out to um, Canadian authors. I think U.S. authors don't really think um, about nation in, in those ways. They just think Canadians are Americans because they don't think of the differences. So that that's also interesting to me. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to it's fascinating just across the border, and um, often I feel a sense of relief in many ways. Um, although there, there, I have experienced some anti-American sentiment, but for the most part, it seems uh, more relaxed when yeah. across the 49th, which is really interesting to note. There are yeah. photos of your mom in action with a motorcycle troop. And I'm wondering what role those photos played in the creation of this book. Well, I mean, they were pretty much everything in the creation of this book in that, you know, I grew up with these images. Um, I grew up with four of the images that are present in A Thousand Times You Lose Your Treasure. Um, the four images are one of her troop, which was called Viet Hung, of, of uh, five women. One's astride a motorcycle, and then she's flanked by two others, one, one of which is my mother. And she would have been uh, 18 in the picture. So, you know, when she was in this motorcycle troop, it was like what she did instead of going to college. You know, she was in a circus and, and worked and, you know, had this local celebrity, um, was independently, financially independent um, because of it. And also like free from the strictures of a, of a very traditional Buddhist family. You know, she lived her life free. Uh, to do this thing that's also obviously took great courage and is pretty pretty wild, you know, to to uh, to think of um, the risk taking involved and the sort of um, extremeness of this activity um, and certainly uniqueness. So obviously, there, it was striking from the moment you know I laid eyes on these images. The other three were one of my mother with her leg on the handlebars of the bike going down a road with her hand on her chin, looking very elegantly, elegant and unbothered. And then the other two were her performing um, inside of the barrel, which is also called the wall of death, which is a cylinder um, above which the audience um, circles and can look down on the performers who are circling perpendicularly along the side 
Um, my mother could go to the very top of this um, cylinder, the wall of death, and which is called the red line, and also would have her arms out, which is something that the other, the only one other person in her troop would be willing to do. Anyway, so those obviously were two also very striking images. Um, but the but the silence around the images was pretty powerful. There wasn't there, they weren't really narrated. Um, so because my I knew my mother as a, you know a waitress as they were known in the 70s. Um, and she was a career waitress and um, you know, very proudly American um, and you know English speaker and had left her Vietnamese-ness as far behind her as she could. Um, had married a, a white American who worked for the State Department. Um, and, and we didn't speak Vietnamese at home. And so I never, I never learned to speak Vietnamese. Although when I came, uh, I was born in Vietnam, as you, as you mentioned. When I came to the US, I, I would have been speaking Vietnamese, but my, you know, I was still like, I was two. So it wasn't possible for me to really form the whole sentence. But as you know, if you've been around any two-year-olds, uh, they have command of the whole grammar at that point. Um, but that's a side note uh, that has to do with um, me and, and my relationship to language. But um, the stories around the motorcycle photographs um, just remained sort of unarticulated. And if I would ask my mother, you know, to tell me about it, she would say, well, that was a long time ago. Um, I was, you know, that was, and then she wanted to talk about something else. There was a lot of def deflection. Um, so it took a long time to really even understand their context and to be able to understand like what her life was like around them. Um, because by the time she left Vietnam, she had quit the circus like for six years. So they really were a long time ago for her. Um, but also it was clear, it, not only was it a long time ago and another world ago, but there was also a lot of um, other things around her wanting to leave it behind. And so um, I couldn't, of course, leave those amazing images unnarrated as a person who always from, from a very young age was interested in writing and, and poetry and telling stories, I um, had kept, kept um, requesting information you know, over the years um, from her. I had had the images framed. Um, I remember one time in college and she saw that I had framed um, two copies of these images and had them on my first apartment wall, she said, why don't you have any recent pictures of me up? Like, it was as though this was another person. And so I started writing the sequence in 2013, but it was a really hard um, book to, to write. It's partly why it took me seven years. I mean, there was a big gap. I wrote Violet Energy Ingots in between. I had set it aside after, after the first sort of like 20 How did you get the title for the book? When I when I first sat to sat down to write the first twenty, um, <laughs> I, I it was the first time I had I had, had any sort of dedicated writing time. Um, I'd always been a sort of uh, writer who had to write while working, um, you know, because of having too many jobs and raising children and 
Um, so, so I had this period of time that was set aside. I had gotten one of those coveted writing residencies and had a situation where I could actually leave my work situation to take it. Um, and I brought with me to the residency a, a copy of the I Ching, which is um, a divination book, uh, very old. Um, the copy that I brought with me was not the Wilhelm, but the Wilhelm was a uh, translation was my first um, edition, which I picked up from a used bookstore when I was a teenager. And so I threw my coins, you know, when you draw your hexagram, you throw coins and depending on the pattern of how they fall, um, it, you, uh, it relate, re relates to a corresponding hexagram. And the hexagram I drew was number 51, Chen, arousing thunder, thunder over thunder. It's shock, it's like chaos. And so I immediately shoved aside the aging in my hexagram and I tried to dismiss it. So I, And so then the next day, and maybe tried to write, I don't know what I did that first day, but the next day I threw my, my coins again and I got 51 again. And then I threw it again and I got number 51 again. So, and if you know, like the odds of that are, are, pretty, are pretty low to get to draw the same hexagram of all the hexagrams you could draw again, three times in a row. So I, I realized I had to pay attention to it. And the changing line, which is when you read what the I Ching says about your hexagram said, a hundred thousand times you lose your treasure. It says many other things, but I, I, but I found that really resonant. And I, but I also decided a hundred is too many times. A thousand times is plenty of times to lose your treasure. Um, and I, I tried to stay in consideration of what the hexagram was trying to say. And then I realized, well, of course, like I was born into this really cataclysmic moment in history, um, you know, in my, which my mother was already living through, um, you know, in Vinlong uh, near Saigon in the late 60s. Um, also, I mixed, so I, all, I, my birth like would have been like an automatic jeopardy for her as a single mother to, to raise me. So I realized that this, hexagram, even though I understood and wanted to be really careful of how I uh, included the history of colonial violence and military uh, industrial violence in her life. I didn't want it to take centrality, um, but, the, but the I Ching let me know like, no, it's really about looking at how she lived through this cataclysmic uh, structural change. Um, it was her liberation and her strength was her ad adaptation to the experience of shock and chaos. Um, so that's, so that's where the title came from. I've had that experience with the runes and, uh, you know, you get a rune two days in a row and it's like, no, go back. It's trying to tell you something. <laughs> And um, I think Hagalaz might be the, the rune counterpart to number 51, the rune of hail, which uh, in it is looked, it, it's looked at as a seed, not as ice. So a seed for things to develop from that. So interesting how divination and projective verse, for instance, might be related or composition in general. There's a poem on page 10, the flying motorcycle artist that 
really give some good background uh, to the story. And it'd be, it's high time that I, I think we had you read something. So would you be interested in reading that? Yes, The Flying Motorist Artist. Um, it's, it's the poem uh, that, that's, that speaks uh, of how my mother, whose Vietnamese name um, was Diep, how she met a fate when she was a child in that a circus came to town and she went to, uh, she snuck out of the house uh, where she grew up on this, you know, in a, on a farm in a, in a rural place in Kenta. And the title, The Flying Motorist Artist, um, is what is what the what the Viet Hung performers, what the stunt motorcycle cyclist called themselves. The flying motorist artist. At 12, Diep didn't have a half cent entrance fee to see the circus performance. When she was 12, three motorcycle performers traveled from Thailand to Kenta. I thought they were from the Philippines. No, Thailand, a motorcycle act that came to her province in the lower Mekong Delta joining a country fair for the new year, 1954. Everywhere we came to see displays of snakes, contortionists, fortune tellers to exchange caged birds. She, the disobey, Diep, done with farm chores, washing clothes, seeing two chickens, but never the kitchen. She made things burn or break, they said, spilled rice in the dirt, bad luck, they said, and banned her. Recall that one seer and her mad possession, spirits in the belly, suddenly enlarged, round and hard. When she saw the palm reader, they made tell of a sailboat. Come see the flying motorist artist, riding shadows on the wall of death, riding shadows on the wall of death. Watch them defy death on the wall of death. Danger perpendicular, their reaching hands. Two men, a lone woman riding her name loud, loud and loud motorbike flying the wooden wall roars the flying motorist artist not motorcycle artist as i said yeah. thank you for that <laughs> she had some real guts to do something like that i wonder you know the thought occurred to me did she ever get hurt doing that oh yeah um, and, and I, and, uh, in fact, you know, um, as, as it happens, you know, in, in everyone's life, the, the sort of, um, follies of one's youth comes back in, in later life, uh, like evil Knievel, you know, when he, at, by the end of his life, he had a lot of pains. She fell, you know, she, there's a story she told me about this big performance in front of then South Vietnam's president, DM. Uh, where they did an exhibition in front of the president um, where she fell. Um, and, but then because it was the show must go on, like got back up and kept writing and like 
dramatically like was bleeding, you know, um, from from the cuts that she had received from her fall. Um, so that was one time that I know of. Uh, but another time I know of, and I think I, one of the early poems introduces it. Um, you know, she talks about having, you know, falling on a part of the bike. I think it was the handlebars and them digging into her, her knee, um, dramatically. You know, removing flesh, um, having um, fallen um, from 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 great heights um, to the bottom of the barrel uh, with the bike on top of her. So yeah, and you know, she was probably a hundred pounds. Yeah. <laughs> the bike might have weighed as much as she. Ouch. I crashed my bike, my bike last year, not quite a year ago. And oh my God. I mean, and this is a normal city bike riding, so you can imagine what stunt accidents might be like. Um, I'm wondering how you go about assembling a book. It took you a long time to write this one. Um, and uh, you know, the, the time the time and it really shows poets in that way are are, are alchemists or magicians in a way because they can take all this time and boil it down to an essence and it really shows in the book because it's incredibly potent and i'm wondering um how you go about putting it together uh i think duncan who you mentioned earlier was more into doing a chronological approach what's your approach oh well for this book um not unlike my other books, you know, I, I think of like a sequence that uh, can open, that feel like the opening. And then I find within the manuscript, the sequence that feels like the hub or the center of the book. And then, you know, sort of the outro or the sort of way the book wants to, you know, have at its, at its ending sequence. You know, of course with poetry, one often is going through a book achronomically, you know, without, without any sort of order, uh, or at least I do. I don't know, my reading maybe is, is different from everyone else's. I mean, of course I also read it front to back, but I was interested in how the book could be read from different points of entry. Um, I was interested in less the chronology, um, but to take on um, different forms of address, different assemblies of attention, or different ways I've talked about this. Um, and I was also thinking about song and story. Um, there are several ghost stories, you know, in the in the book, as long as and including, you know, my mother's stories. But I have like ghost stories in there, and um, you know, I've always I've always loved ghost stories, and you know, I also, you know, of course, I loved music, like many people, of music. Uh, but but I but I was thinking the other day about how some of my earlier sort of like grade school songs we'd learn, you know, the different songs we, we learned, uh, the Molly Malone song, the Irish ballad, and the Australian ballad, Waltzing Matilda, and they both have ghosts in them. And I loved them for their like sudden deaths and slightly macabre, you know, materials, but they're, but they're like the ghosts that are really animated, you know, within the space of the song. I think there's something about hauntings that is is also been been a long preoccupation of mine. Um, and you know, when we tell ghost stories or share these kinds of stories, you know, they they aren't um, you know they're sort of buoyant and and have their own capacities, right? And so there's so just by sequencing them, it doesn't necessarily mean. Or maybe going back to that Joanne Kiger idea of the syllables, it's maybe they're more like 
you know, arrangements along a necklace. But um, so I do start with a, a, what, what I think of as the sort of opening structure, the opening sort of strains. Um, I think musically, I also think about the kinds of poems, you know, so that there, there does seem to feel like, you know, not too many matching poems, you know, to have a, a kind of variation. Um, so, you know, di the, different, the different sort of points of entry um, and the different kinds of poems I was interested in, as I said earlier, you know, to make, making sure that the storytelling didn't get overtaken by any one um, perspective. And so, you know, had a, had a wall full of my pages um, that I looked at every day um, and would sometimes make line edits on, but also had a kind of flagging system that had colors on that on them that would let me know what kind of perspective I might be representing or kind of poem like some of their there's some archival fragments that that speak in the in the group of poems like a language colloquial uh, book of um, language exercises, um, you know, war, war sort of document materials. Um, but I didn't want that tone, which is quite formal and dry to overtake the whole. Um, so I, I, it was sort of a, a mapping and a tracking. Um, and, you know, in the end, it became also this sort of uh, project that lived on my wall, um, of which my, my younger son said it, that it looked like one of those, um, you know, uh, one of those detective stories where the, where the, um, the deeply invested detective has the whole array of all the suspects that are involved in some mystery. Um, but that's, those are sort of the strategies I adapted. Well, talk about the ghosts. Uh, I mean, that was one thing I, I picked out as something to talk about. Uh, in North America, we tend to not dwell on the energetic, you know, ghosts, uh, I mean, that's, you know, BS or for, you know, Hollywood movies or something like that. Uh, the poem Vietnam Ghost Story High School Clock Tower gives us a glimpse of how Vietnamese culture deals with such matters. That's uh, on page 33, as does the poem um, Feast of the First Morning of the First Day, page 52. But the, the first one, the, the, the ghost story on page 33 might be interesting to, to hear. Yeah, this one um, was shared on a on a on a podcast that I was listening to out of Ho Chi Minh City, um, which many still refer to as Saigon. Um, that was part of the Saigoners podcast, and it was Halloween, so they were telling ghost stories, and I was like, "Oh, perfect! Um, I love ghost stories." And yeah, this one um, is a famous haunting in Ho Chi Minh City. At, the, at a famous high school, um, which I think is known for its colonial architecture with this clock tower as part of its uh, features and this particular ghost um, who is also, um, I, think, I think I remember in the podcast, they actually have the purple Al Yai uh, on, a, on like a mannequin in the high school. Um, I think this is also maybe a way of homage um, and maybe trying to manage manage the ghost of this, which is a classic sort of Romeo and Juliet story. 
Vietnam ghost story, high school clock tower. The cursed object in the high school is the clock tower. The curse arose from a secret teenaged love story and a pregnancy discovered by the families with many objections and keeping them apart. The clock tower is the site of her pregnant suicide. And now the room inside the tower is kept locked. Mist surrounds the room. A purple alley ghost haunts the hallways. A purple alley phantom wanders the courtyard, sits under a banyan tree. Sometimes the high school principal places magical amulets and burns offerings inside the room to appease the purple alley ghost. And that seems to help somewhat. I love the somewhat there at the end. <laughs> you know, I can't help but think I, I went to a high school in Chicago that I think was founded in 1908 or something like that it was an all boys school for uh, almost 70 years. And the clock tower is the iconic part of it. So I can't help but think but compare this story to, to my own high school experience, Lane Tech on the northwest side of, of Chicago. And see the difference between Vietnamese culture and U.S. culture and my own culture. You know, my mother uh, comes from Cuba and uh, that is a culture that's more open to the energetic and, uh, you know, you talk about Santeria or, or other traditions like that. So um, it's fascinating to see that what I bring to that. And then of course the, the great ending somewhat, you can never be sure with the energetic. I mean, you can't see it. So it's, it's a hunch. You've just got to feel it. And we're taught to, to um, disrespect that or to discourage that in, in US culture. So fantastic. I love that. Um, yeah, I was actually thinking about how in US culture really when it's acceptable is if it's around like sporting events, like the superstitious or appeasing you know, like the spirits, um, there seems to be, there can be a culture that's maybe um, made okay by the, by the presence of a sporting event. <laughs> right, the, the costumes, people dressing up in face paint or dressing up as a Seahawk or- Having chants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, I was thinking about that, the, the, the local soccer team, I, I did go to one soccer game and it felt, it felt like a cult to me, I hate to say it. Maybe if I go more often, I'd get into it. But it was it was kind of kind of strange. Um, whenever the average U.S. American thinks about Vietnam, they think about what the war that the Vietnamese call the American War, um, which I think is a better title for it. Except if you say that in this country, they're going to say which one, because it seems this country's always at war. Um, but of course, this is a key event in your life because you fled your ancestral homeland because of it. Um, the poem Napalm Notes gets right to the heart of one of the worst atrocities of that war. Uh, and like you said, the poem is uh, very matter of fact, page 17. Would that be something you'd be interested in reading for us? Yeah, sure. I, sh I should clarify that um, the, the war certainly was part of the story that, that put my life into motion, um, but the circumstances were were not dire in in uh, in terms of refugeeism. You know, we we didn't have that experience. My mother and I we left with with her her husband 
um, who became my father. Um, and I'd love to read this poem, Me Palm Notes. Like you said, it's, um, it has a tone of um, formality or matter of factness. I'm trying to find my page, here we go. Napalm notes. Developed in secret at Harvard, produced by Dow Chemical, an efficient incendiary formula perfected on Valentine's Day, 1942. A thickened gasoline can be dropped from planes, napalm bombs, also flamethrowers. Eight million tons of bombs in Vietnam burns at 1,500 to 2,200 degrees Fahrenheit, one-fifth as hot as the surface of the sun. Very sticky, stable, also relatively cheap. Boom, and there it ends. Uh, very matter of fact, very powerful. Without, without really getting into emotions, but allowing us the space to bring our own emotions into it as all the best, as the most artful poetry is done. How do you know when a poem is over? How can you, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, when anything is over, it stops. You, we, you can compare it to many things, but um, those, those, especially the endings of those last two poems, very potent. It's almost like mic drop kind of things. Um, by feel, by texture, by, um, you know, seeing to its shape, you know, in, in projective verse, when Creeley, Olson quotes Creeley as saying, you know, form is nothing more than a, an extension of content. Um, and, the, and, and I think about that in terms of, of feeling uh, the, the, the breadth of a, of a poem if it's if it's established itself, um, you know the, the sonic textures, the the rhythmic qualities that that bring about a sensation of like, okay, this is the shape. Um, you know, there's often these conversations about openness versus closeness, and those can be you know interesting ways to think about whether something you know takes on a particular kind of shape. Um, I try not to think of in those terms, but think more um, in terms of a, a whole assembly or a whole constel constellation of concerns um, with regard to how, how do I know whether something's done. And, and sometimes the poem will signal that maybe it doesn't know yet that it's done, you know, or which could also mean either it's, it's not ready to be managed more. Uh, it needs to be shorter by half or longer by twice, or, you know, maybe um, made into spare parts. You know, there's, there's many different ways in which a poem then might manifest again or, or um, you know, permutate again. So, um, but, but a lot of it has to do with a, a kind of feel. I, I, the, the difficulty was what, as one does you know sort of train oneself to write it you know to write uh, in ways with these kinds of considerations is that one can also have sort of signature maneuvers you know and so it also becomes a 
it also becomes a challenge to um, keep open the possibilities so that, uh, or at least that's, that was my experience with this manuscript, to keep open the possibilities and to um, interrogate whether, whether it truly is the shape that it needs to be in. Because there were, there were periods of times in the, in the making of the manuscript where I understood that I wasn't pushing uh, hard enough against form or expression, um, that, it, that it needed to do more, it needed, there was needed to be some furthering. So, you know, it depends. How do you use spare parts? How do I use spare parts? Yeah. Well, you know, you never throw anything away. Um, and sometimes when one is in a, in a moment of, of need regarding, you know, trying to find a, a, some you know, piece of language that can then intervene in a poem that might, you know, might is needing, needing intervention. I'll, I'll go through my notebook or if it's kept electronically. I, I like the tactility of, of writing notebooks. Um, so I tend to, to do that strategy first. And it, and it kind of makes a difference too because there are lots of accidental things that happen when you rifle through your own things, when you go back into your own sort of compost, just you know, to, 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 to bring it into a new um, possibility. So, you know, it might be, you know, just a line, um, an image, reuse a title, you know. I, I know in, in A Thousand Times You Lose Your Treasure, there's a poem that I actually completed. It was one of the early poems, that first 20 I mentioned earlier, um, that in the final sort of view of the whole, I made the decision to take it out, but it exists in a, the form of like one line in one of the poems. So that's one example of how I used a spare part. I remember that, but I, I can't call it up out of my memory, but I remember that one line poem, hmm. but- uh, uh, Oh, that one, yeah, no, that's a different poem. Oh, is that right? Okay. That's, that is a one line poem, but what I said was, the poem that I pulled from the manuscript exists as a single line inside of a poem. Oh, I see. So that's what it got Recy down recycled to. as a spare or yeah. recycled as, a, as, as part of a new, a new configuration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Michael, Michael McClure called uh, these pocket notebooks, his paper brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because you left uh, Vietnam at a, at a very early age, one and a half, two years old. Uh, you, you didn't grow up with Vietnamese culture, yet the book gives us a good sense of some of that culture. How has it been to try and catch up in a way with uh, your, your mom's culture, with Vietnamese culture? Um, you know, it's, it's a little vexed because uh, <laughs> there's a sense of like kind of dispossession. I mean, obviously I, I, I've, I've kind of resigned that I, I won't become a fluent, you know, Vietnamese speaker. Um, you know, I, I actually sort of evidence my resignation um, in the book in a certain way, because I, I, I take um, this uh, colloquial Vietnamese handbook of, of language exercises and I use them in, in the poems. Um, it, this was a, a, a book that I bought in the 90s when Vietnam first opened to Westerners uh, entering the country um, when it was safe to actually go to go there. Um, I bought them, they came with cassette tapes with the idea that I would learn Vietnamese and I told my mother about them on the phone and 
And as we talked about, she said, you know, that's that's a northern accent. Like that's not the right accent at all. So <laughs> I and then it was really hard. Like I started listening to the tapes. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so impossible. Um, you know, so that so not having access to the language, you know, is that's a barrier. Um it, it having to um you know do form acts of translation you know is 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 part of it um and also adaptations you know and also the recognitions like it, that it's not um that it's not that it's not really a measure of of whether or not or not i am getting it right or am vietnamese enough you know that um that our diaspora actually is is super various so part of the gift of becoming more um, um, in conversation with that aspect of, of my of my roots um, is is that is that recognition that that the diaspora looks like a lot of different things that I'm not and that I'm not just this orphan uh, or one off as I was talking recently to a diaspora Vietnamese writer you know there's this sensation I think growing up because um, we each had these very different um, you know, kinds of um, entries into becoming a, an American who's also Vietnamese, um, but our own kind of Vietnamese that we thought we were the only sort of ones. And it's like, no, I think each person has these different expressions. Well, of course they do. But I think because there has been this sort of uh, absence um, in terms of my not having a community and then in the larger expression, the narratives are so monolithic and they didn't match up with my um, my experience. So I always felt sort of outside of what was supposedly like the Vietnamese diasporic experience. Um, it's been very meaningful. I mean, really, I, I realized early on that one of the a pivotal moment um, for me in understanding that I was a poet was a book that I found in the public library that was translated by um, Win Bick and um, Merwin um, in the 70s called the 10,000 years of Vietnamese poetry, or is it a thousand years? I don't, maybe it's a thousand years and I'm putting, making it 10,000 because of my book. But anyway, the opening of that book uh, in the introduction, the introductory words were the Vietnamese have felt they were always poets. And I was like, okay, I can be a poet. Like I didn't really have like a sign that it was okay for me to be a poet because all the poets I read that like nothing, like I didn't have anything in common with. Uh, and which I think is one of the reasons I sought out that book even though it was a book of trans in translation in English and mostly traditional poems. Um, at any rate, it, the biggest gift also too is like to be in closer proximity with um, other Vietnamese diasporic writers. And so I've been involved with She Who Has No Masters, which is part of the Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network. Um, we're starting a mentorship this year. I'm one of the mentors for our first cohort. We do a lot of collaborative works and that's been like just a sort of soul nourishing um, kind of event in my life. That's fantastic. Um, page 18. Help me with the pronunciation, learning the Don Bao. Yes. Well, you know, my because my Vietnamese is non-existent, I say the words with great approximation and with an American accent. So um, I actually heard your your pronunciation sounded really good to my ear. Thank you. <laughs> uh, did you want me to read this one? 
I would love it. Yeah, we, you know, we have a, a, a fairly decent Vietnamese community here in Seattle. So pick up a little bit and you tell people, no, it's pho. Yeah. Not, not pho. And so, you know, you have that, but I, you know, I, I like to think I have a good ear. So, but I, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm also prone to great mistakes as I, as I did when I said the name of the first poem, but um, yeah, I'd love to hear that poem. Okay. Great. Learning the Dambao. The monochord of Vietnam typically used for lamenting songs, traditionally sung by blind players. Single string with resonator, empty coconut shell, manipulated by a stick plucked entirely in harmonics, also called gourd zither. Pluck it with some kind of pick. The notes are clear and bell-like, fairy-like, a winged string. Flexing the string, the pitch rises and falls, the notes trill. It sounds like the Vietnamese voice, they say, the pitch bending the way the voice holds sway, bends towards the Vietnamese voice. Old as war, old as epic, a poor person's instrument. With an electric pickup and amp, you can make it sing, welcome to the Hotel California. <laughs> You know, that ending is just so classic. And again, I think of a, a, a Cuban experience I had. I had relatives who were on the Mario boat lift, you know, and we started talking about music and they talked about the song Hotel California. And here I am going, oh, not the Eagles, <laughs> please, something a little more meaty than that. But you can imagine, uh, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave, you know, the residents of uh, someone in Cuba with that particular tune and hearing it on Radio Marti or, or Miami radio stations or whatever, however they got to it in the pre-internet days. So uh, going to the Hotel California was just knocked me out on that one. Oh, yay. You know, um, here we are um, 50 days, 51 days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, you, like you said earlier, you were really too young and, and it wasn't imminent threat that uh, forced you out of Vietnam, but um, do you have, uh, is, is there a special reaction that you have given the, the situation that right now that uh, we're living through? I mean, we live it through it vicariously here on this continent, but uh, still it's really horrific. You get to the point where you have to stop looking at the news, I think at a certain point, but um, is there any special resonance or any special suffering that you're going through uh, through this period of time watching this happen in Ukraine? Oh yeah, it's interesting whenever there's um, what my mother, I remember one time she, we were looking at footage of um, a horrible earthquake um, in Haiti, was it 2008? And she said, oh, it looks like war destructions. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that those scenes of um, destruction, you know, obviously with um, force that's human, not, not natural, um, that's organized and targeted. Um, it does bring up uh, those 
you know, uh, kinds of war terrors, you know, that, that, that those are associated with in, in one's, um, you know, recent generational memory. Um, so, you know, like when that was happening last year in Palestine, you know, it's, there's, there's so many occasions where um, these types of um, aggressions um, happen and it's always, um, you know, the most vulnerable that suffer the most, um, which is also why I was interested in my book to center the stories of women um, and children, you know, um, in a way, it's <laughs> a certain perspective, I think, in the book that's um, from perspective of myself growing up in the shadow of, you know, all of, all of that, which was a haunting too in the U.S. for U.S. Americans uh, who weren't from Vietnam, who, who had served in Vietnam, in the war in Vietnam. So, you know, those and the kinds of, um, what does the Viet Nguyen say, you know, it's that the, the, the war is, is the second time that it's fought is in memory, you know, so there's also ways in which there's this, uh, a, a war inside the imaginary um, that's at play. And I wonder sometimes if the fatigue that, that we share, um, when you talk about having to, to look away, um, you know, isn't about, isn't, isn't about that form of protectionism, but it, but it does draw me into thinking about how important it is to narrate um, our, our, our most like human responses uh, to it. Uh, just the other day, someone was asking me about teaching poetry. You know, that's something that I, I like to do, teaching creative writing specifically and looking at poems. And um, they asked me what poem, you know, do I bring in or have I brought in? And, you know, for like an introduction for an undergraduate situation. And the poem I thought of was uh, Dulce a Decorum S by Wilfred Owen. Um, who of course, you know, was working through his PTSD, writing this poem um, about the event of, a, of chemical warfare um, and seeing a, a comrade die in front of him. And, um, and then as a refusal of Horace is, you know, it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Uh, and so I think about, you know, so the poetry's responses to these occasions and how our imaginary is a powerful way to um, consider um, freeing content, freeing, freeing our thinking. My friend Amalio Madueño, poet in Taos, New Mexico, says that chemi chemical weapons treat people like insects, which really puts it into perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Sing Ding Ghostly, page 31, is uh, more of that rich personal myth that I alluded to in the introduction. Um, the Hua referenced is not you in that poem. No, there's other kinds of ghosts in, in the book, um, including, yes, um, children that my mother had bef before I was born. Um, one was a daughter who... Um, was named, who had my name before me, who she was the original Hua. Um, yeah, and so I invoke um, her. I don't have any photos of her. Um, and I know just a little about her. 
Um, but of course, that's a different kind of haunting. That's also personal um, to have the, the ghost girl's name. Um, do you have the page number for that poem handy? Yes, that's on page 31. Thank you. Sing ding ghostly. Where is she buried? The first Hua, gone to ground, buried in Mekong mud, dead unknown years drowned in lung matter. The first Hua had not medicine. I got it, the medicine, and got the golden visa and the ash hair and breathings, lashings to a raft life, lashed to life, the blonde joke of pull eyes. Mother swims from the nest, pushes sand first, scrapes flat flipper feet. We come from egg and make it, are the lived lung loved thing. Cracked leather egg from dragon fairy mating left warm in warm sand. She buried the nest us as nest so we could unbury gulp sand, few kin in the sand we seek under beached beach, moon beach, the moon water beach. This isn't doing anything like redemption, do dad, mountain, dragon, unsuffering, did slither to sea waves. Who are you to talk tits and knee shame? Sing ding dong songs at me, boys. I called it unsufferable, said, I'll meet her in heaven where the perfume is. I say, I'll meet you there, Hua. I'll meet her in heaven where the perfume is. Oh my God, fantastic. My mother lost a child before I was born at eight months. She said uh, the baby just stopped kicking. It was a girl. So another powerful resonance for me mm. when I read your work. What advice would you give for someone who wants to move into a more serial approach to writing poems, uh, who wants to look at it from a project? And, you know, writing a, a mother book, a book about your mom is such a beautiful thing. And it, it's, it would seem to me very difficult. Um, although I would love to, to, to do that on some level. And I don't think there's enough mother poems that'd be a good anthology there probably is an anthology of mother poems but what advice would you have for someone trying to tackle more of a uh, a serial approach make that shift to a serial approach um you know i think that um thinking investigatively is is one way journalistically with a lot of heart um i think uh i like I like the term gathering um, because it feels generous. Like it's not just about, um, I don't know, something um, hard and fact, like fact files or something like that. But I, I do appreciate the, something that Ed Sanders said about arranging or being, you know, his interest in, you know, writing biographies in verse and telling histories in verse is, um, you know, he's talked about arranging fact strip strips. And he also talked about, you know, the saturation draw, which is after Olson as well. 
you know, so to, to dig one thing, you know, for a while. Um, data, to, data clusters. Data clusters, exactly. You know, those are really useful thing, ways to think about it. I've also been interested in thinking about it from, term, from terms or vantages that feel, um, um, I think I used the word generous earlier. So sometimes I, I'm, I'm thinking through like, how could I learn about seriality, you know, from plant life or a particular plant, you know, or geode formation. Um, those are other forms of intelligence that pattern, that um, elaborate, um, that are part of a process. I think of writing in a serial form is a way to also think about how you can move your content with language um, with this sort of more open idea of it uh, as being a process. Because I think one of the things that kept hooking me um, and preventing me from seeing the book to um, its completion is um, I think a, a kind of colonial outlook on the archive. And I really wanted to break up, break that out. I wanted to have it be more mythic in its shape or, um, you know, take on these other dimensions. So I think, you know, in terms of writing a series to really think of, think of it as a process as, as this larger linked space of uh, correspondences. Um, when I went to write A Thousand Times You Lose Your Treasure, I talked to Ann Waldman about writing an epic since she's an epic writer herself. And she said the idea of having sort of like a returning image was an important feature for her, an imago. And that actually became, it started with Chen, the hexagram for the thunder, chaos shock. Um, and then it became the expression of the tower from the tarot, which then also became emblem inside of the poems. And I recognized um, that it included, and I meant to say this when you were mentioning the different kind of clock towers, is one of my like first um, jobs um, when I lived in Austin, Texas, um, when I started working for the University of Texas is I was hired to um, inaugurate the opening of the structure that's their symbol, their university clock tower, which had been cut closed for 25 years and had this shadow of a, of a sniper massacre uh, behind it that happened in 1966. And that timestamp for me too was like, oh, that corresponded too with um, you know, thinking about the period of time that my mother was living through. Um, and then of course it is a tower. And then of course also the tower card was the card I pulled before I went to Vietnam for the first time. And I was really nervous about it. And this was in part like of my, um, you know, writing of the book this was to, to go to Vietnam. I actually went to Hanoi instead of South Vietnam because I was doing, um, I was doing a workshop in Hanoi and that's where my, my contacts were, the small press Ajar, um, who does uh, bilingual uh, work, uh, contemporary Vietnamese um, and American diasporic Vietnamese poetries. And um, the tower card was something I was really worried about 
um, but then when I when I got there, there was nothing tower-like about it. It was all really quite um, interesting and uh, introspective. And then I met a, a lovely group of people. But one day, um, as part of a, a, an outing I was taking with people I had met, we, we wandered into a park and it was at the end of Tet, which is the big holiday. And so all the families were out, it was a Sunday. And um, they had all these different things set up for children, including like a little carousel and a train. And then I saw uh, and heard actually a loudspeaker and someone's voice saying something over and over again. And I asked my guests what they were saying. And they said, oh, well, there's a motorcycle act over here where they ride on the side of a cylinder. And so I was like, that was what my mother used to do. So I had wandered into the park at the moment where this visiting motorcycle act had set up and I got to see this act and then uh, talked to my mom through Skype that evening to tell her that I had stumbled upon it. But when I, when, I, when I finished watching the performance and I came back down and I was documenting it and I realized that the structure looks like a tower because it's a cylinder and it has the canvas big top at the top of it. So it was sort of like a, a visual joke that the tarot was telling me but also the synchronicity of it um, blew me away and, it, and I, I was left with the feeling of shock, so. When you, when you decide on a certain project and there are certain key images that come through, uh, it's been my experience that things tend to just fall into your lap and that's an example of that. Yes. Yeah. Your mom died in 2019 and the book came out after her death, right? Yeah, what, two, two years later? You obviously had uh, poems going back many years. What did your mom think about the poems in this book? Uh, you know, I was so lucky. Um, she actually got to see me perform from poems in this book. Um, I was uh, brought to uh, the University of Maryland and that's where I had gone uh, as an undergrad. Um, my, and my mother still lived in the, my childhood home and I, uh, she was in hospice at the time. So I was going there a lot. And um, so she came to the performance and I read from uh, the manuscript, including poems um, that I had at that time that included these aspects of her life. And then at the end, as the finale, I was able to have them um, project the four images uh, from her motorcycle days, which brought the house down. Um, she had heard, heard the poems before, um, particularly there, there's a poem that tells the story of how she was named Diep. And um, I read that poem to her um, both on that night and then previously, after which she said, um, after hearing me read, that she, she felt that I had remembered her life more than she did, better than she did. Um, so it, it, that, was really, that was really special for me to hear from her. And she was um, really happy. After the performance at the University of Maryland, she was beaming and said, I am famous, talking about herself. Um, but also she saw that, you know, I was up on the stage, uh, you know, with this, with the audience and um, selling my books afterwards to the students. Um, and she thought that was pretty neat. She, she 
thought it was pretty cool that I was writing about her because she was like an ordinary person. Oh, she's she's badass, not an ordinary person. <laughs> True. People, people, I mean, I could maybe ride my bike when I used to be able to ride my bike with no hands after the crash. My bike's not the same, but the motorcycle on the handlebar, you see that picture and you're going, holy shit. <laughs> I couldn't even think of doing that. And it's amazing. And she looks so, it's looks so mad. It looks like she's surfing um, when, uh, in one of those pictures. Is there a poem that you like to end on or would you like me to, I have one in mind, but um, viewed from 2020 on page 90 or sings the wishing well on page 96 or maybe one that you like to close with to, to end our uh you know we've been going for over an hour so it's probably a good time to close the interview oh i love your choices let's let's go with um that second poem it's towards the end of the book too the, the wishing well poem 96 yeah yeah Sings the wishing well, the ghost well cared for. In the story, the men get to live. The wife, faithful, dies. Her death is pious. Strangled stars bangle. Gather floating flowers. Underworld yourself. A beautiful dreamer in the mosquito myth with visions of owning a grand house. She grows ill in the fields and dies, is arrayed in a field of flowers, saved by blood magic. She later betrays doomed to live as nuisance, begging, begging. Don't go, again I call, newly flooded fields of rice. Farm girl sits on the flood wall, sings the wishing well. We sing her story beyond time, wield feathers and clouds of her, a melted floating love gem, our tears mix with tears. I have no sacred rights for you, saving the sacred grove you grew. You use the word generosity and it struck me at that time that there's a huge generosity of spirit in your work. And uh, I'm grateful to have had this experience to talk to you about it, to get to know it better and um, to uh, allow other people to get to know your work better. And uh, I'm very grateful. Thank you for your time today and, and your brilliant, brilliant responses to my questions. Thank you so much. It's been such a deep pleasure, Paul. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, the sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the Eastern Missouri Breaks and Western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.